0: This is Marvel's Biggest Villain is the American Military and Government. Every time I even attempt to broach this topic, specifically on social media, I am met with hostility from the fandom surrounding this franchise. I understand that fandom culture is rooted in a stubbornness only found in a university student refusing to go to bed at a reasonable hour. This fandom though, they take this stubbornness to a whole new level. Since 2008, the Marvel Cinematic Universe has garnered a very, very, very supportive and unwavering fandom, many of whom are unwilling to hear a whisper of critique directed at their favorite franchise. The franchise, based on characters and storylines found in Marvel Comics, includes films, television shows, books, and more. The overlapping storylines, cast members, and characters have excited viewers across the globe as the films constantly break box office records. Honestly, now might be a good time to clarify that I don't necessarily hate the franchise. That might be too strong a statement. If I were to put it in Facebook terms, it's, it's complicated. I still have deeply joyful memories from my childhood of watching The Avengers when I was about 12 years old. Of course, it's always Fuck Joss Whedon, but that movie was extremely entertaining and captured the interactions between the team in a multifaceted way. I was 13 when I fell in love with The Winter Soldier, which is still probably the best movie in the MCU. However, I'm 22 now. My taste in film and entertainment has changed drastically since I was a kid. I'm also more aware of analysis and theory associated with the consumption and critique of media. I recognize that a lot of the films in the MCU are simply not well made. Although enjoyment of media may be seen as objective, there are certain elements in filmmaking that reflect the quality. If you watched Thor Love and Thunder, as I unfortunately did, You might not have realized just how bad the editing, framing, direction, and screenplay were if you don't watch many movies, and that is okay. Not everyone is going to be attuned to these details. It takes some getting used to and thousands of hours of watching films. That being said, this franchise is no stranger to technical criticism. However, what concerns me most is not necessarily the technical quality of the films themselves. I wanted to start with this anecdote to showcase how discourse surrounding these films takes many shapes, Yet, even though the technical quality of these films calls for concern, I think there are bigger fish to fry. What concerns me most is the franchise's representation of the US government and military, or American exceptionalism. It is a tricky topic because fandom culture is very sensitive and often lacks critical thinking skills. It is hard enough to critique the franchise's filmic quality without being bombarded by hordes of superhero nerds telling you to die, let alone mention something with political ramifications. Why is it that discussions surrounding propaganda in the MCU are often disregarded or scoffed at? Well, I believe this is the case because the truth is a hard pill to swallow. Let's begin with 2019's Captain Marvel, directed by Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck. This might be the most vicious example of the MCU's perpetuation of military propaganda. The film is the origin story of Captain Marvel, aka Carol Danvers, who is an ex-U.S. Air Force fighter pilot. She's a Kree who, after being exposed to Tesseract energy, has superhuman strength, can project energy, and fly. It was marketed as Disney's ultimate hashtag girlboss movie as they relied on star Brie Larson's feminism and progressive image to market the film. Larson's activism and Danvers' heroism make it easier for general audiences to ignore how this film often feels simply like an Air Force advertisement. The comparisons to Top Gun are not unwarranted, as a 1986 film boosted naval aviator recruitment by 500% after portraying Navy pilots positively. Hell, there were recruitment stalls at theaters playing Top Gun. You could say that Captain Marvel was specifically designed to boost recruitment for female Air Force pilots. This design worked, as the Air Force saw the highest number of female applicants in five years after the release of the film. It would be unfair to say that this is solely due to Captain Marvel, but it would be a lie to say that it didn't have at least a little influence. In fact, recruitment videos aired before many early theater screenings of the film, and many promotional videos starred Brie Larson interacting with and praising Air Force pilots. Let me make this clear. The military directly works with Disney in the production of many MCU projects. Todd Fleming, Chief of the Community and Public Outreach Division at Secretary of the Air Force Public Affairs, confirmed to Military Pop Culture website, Task and Purpose, that the Air Force did work with Disney and Marvel Studios on Captain Marvel. In the article titled, Captain Marvel is the Recruiting Tool of the Air Force's Dreams, I mean, that speaks for itself, doesn't it? Fleming says the film highlighted the importance of the Air Force to our national defense. Despite stating that Captain Marvel was not part of a recruiting strategy, Fleming expects that seeing a strong Air Force heroine would be positively received, which feels like the same thing. So yes, to work with the military, a film script must be approved by it to make sure that the representations are mostly positive. I like explaining Captain Marvel's representation of the Air Force at the beginning of these discourses because the propaganda almost feels a little too on the nose, a little too obvious, especially when looking at how the -the behind-the-scenes videos and images all pointed to a positive, fun, and even quirky outlook at the Air Force. It is worth noting that a lot of elements in Captain Marvel critique the military. There are many MCU projects where the pro-military moment is pretty much undone entirely by the end. However, it is hard to take this undoing seriously when Brie Larson is jumping from one fighter jet to the next in a promotional video. Speaking of fighter jets, the military equipment seen in the MCU is provided by the Pentagon free of charge. Well, not really free. American taxpayers are paying to basically have these long military and intelligence ads made. I mean, there's literally an entertainment sector of the Pentagon that directly involves itself with its representation in media. Phil Strub, Pentagon's former Deputy Director of Entertainment Media, described his role as seeking out ways to capitalize on innovations in entertainment media to inform the American public about the military and or benefit military recruiting and retention. In 2021's WandaVision, which was the best MCU project until it started acting like an MCU project, I won't get into all that now, featured FBI agent Jimmy Woo, played by Randall Park. In the comics, Wu left the FBI decades ago, begging the question why make him an FBI agent in the MCU. There was also a special thanks to the Department of Defense, aka the Pentagon, at the end of the show. These two inclusions have shed light on not only the military's relationship, but the FBI's relationship to the entertainment industry, specifically to Disney. From its inception, the FBI has meddled in the production of film and television, Its founding director, J. Edgar Hoover, played himself in the 1959 film The FBI Story and forced reshoots on scenes that did not portray the FBI positively. Walt Disney was also an FBI informant in return for the ability to use FBI spaces in Disney projects. So, the FBI and the U.S. military get their blood covered, grimy little hands all over these scripts to make sure they like what they see. 2008's The Incredible Hulk, often disregarded from the MCU, went through extensive revision thanks to the DOD. References to Operation Ranch Hand, a military effort of dropping pesticides in Vietnam to starve the Viet Cong, were completely removed, which is no doubt an attempt to hide the atrocities committed by the American military. Tom Secker, a journalist who specializes in the relationship between government institutions and the film industry, found that the Pentagon was allowed to revise the script of 2008's Iron Man in return for Marvel to have access to an Air Force base, an F-22 Raptor fighter jet, and other equipment. This equipment was reportedly worth over $1 billion. Hence, the script revision removed Iron Man being shot down by the Air Force and a joke about military suicide. There is a common trend in MCU films which continue this narrative of changing narratives to fit certain liberal ideals. One noticeable example of this historical revisionism includes the depiction of non-segregated military units during World War II and Captain America, the First Avenger. However, the changing of certain character backstories in the films is further worrying and telling. In the comics, Tony Stark is first captured by Wong Chu, a Vietnamese commander. Tales of Suspense 39 The issue where Tony Stark was introduced was released in March 1963, making this first appearance during the Vietnam War. In 2008's Iron Man, however, the setting is changed to Afghanistan to be familiar to contemporary audiences. This change in setting and villain may seem irrelevant to most, but that is because the propaganda on display here is doing its job. Stark's so-called heroism and escape from the terrorists represent American military power in the Iraq War. Here, the enemy is faceless, as the film does not interrogate why the Ten Rings, a representation for the Taliban or Al-Qaeda, does not merely submit to the American military. American philosopher Judith Butler speaks of the grievable life in their 2009 book, Frames of War, to draw attention to the epistemological problem raised by this issue of framing. The frames through which we apprehend, or indeed fail to apprehend, the lives of others as lost or injured are politically saturated. This can extend the film, as through representation, certain lives are considered ungrievable in films. As stated in Butler's 2004 book, Precarious Life, through both a symbolic identification of the face within human and radical effacement, the enemy is dehumanized and thus there is no need to grieve their life. The enemy here, whether named or unnamed, is not worthy of protection and must be killed. This attitude on display permeates in non-film, real-life settings. So yes, Stark Industries in the MCU ceases weapons operations, but this seems useless when Stark himself creates a wearable weapon that he can use anytime he wants to blow something or someone, some ungrievable person up. This is synonymous with the unregulated nature of American military presence. Sam Wilson, AKA Falcon, AKA Captain America's origin story, was also changed for MCU adaptation, In his original appearance in Marvel Comics, Sam Wilson was a social worker. In the MCU, he was given, you guessed it, a military background. He is written here as a veteran, a former Air Force pair rescue man suffering from PTSD. Some argue that this change to Wilson's character makes sense on paper. However, this only makes sense to viewers because of the pervasive military presence and involvement in the development of these films. In the 2021 Disney Plus show, the Falcon, and the Winter Soldier, Sam Wilson is shown working with the Air Force as he murders terrorists in Libyan airspace, which is a scene almost played for laughs. How the hell did we go from Sam being a social worker to him killing in the name of the USA? The MCU also makes a habit out of villainizing individuals who oppose the oppression imposed by the US. In 2018, Black Panther was a worldwide hit. Its villain, Erik Killmonger, played by Michael B. Jordan, became a polarizing figure. Killmonger attempts to initiate a global black liberation movement by taking over and appropriating the resources of Wakanda. Killmonger's approach to this liberation was met with criticism. However, his attempt to appropriate Wakanda's resources comes from an anti-colonial point of view and pedagogy. Considering Wakanda hid its existence and its resources from the world, including those who could have directly been aided by these resources, Killmonger's cause is not without reason. His violent approach to this revolution is critiqued in Black Panther through the film's liberal, imperialist lens, as Killmonger becomes a rebellious villain that must be defeated by T'Challa, by the Black Panther. And of course, no MCU movie is complete without some sort of inclusion of American imperial power. So T'Challa enlists the help of CIA agent Everett Ross. As Peter Taylor says in U.S. Empire and the Marvel Moral Universe, Everett Ross's presence is suggestive of the numerous instances throughout the 20th century where agents of American imperialism crushed leftist governments or leftist resistance movements in the name of containing communism. Critique of Killmonger's actions forego an acknowledgement of the violent oppression that causes the oppressed to partake in violence as an act of resistance. Taylor also mentions the 2021 television miniseries The Falcon and the Winter Soldier as furthering the American exceptionalism on display in the MCU. Its villain, Carly Morgenthau, leads a group of anti-nationalist super soldiers called the Flag Smashers. Their pro-refugee, anti-border, anti-capitalist stance is in direct opposition to the USA's ideals of nationalism and exceptionalism. After Morgenthau's death, Sam Wilson clarifies that Morgenthau and the Flag Smashers were not terrorists and should not be referred to as such. It should be worth noting that Sam Wilson is Captain America by this point. So this declaration means very little coming from someone who stands for everything the Flag Smashers stood against. Some would go as far as to say this American propaganda is connected to ideas of militainment. Defined by Roger Stahl in Militainment Inc., War, Media, and Popular Culture, militainment is state violence translated into an object of pleasurable consumption. In the entertainment world, 9-11 and its post-9-11 consequences became the events that could be sold to the American and international public. In 2007's The Shock Doctrine, Naomi Klein states that disaster capitalism was a product of the post-9-11 narrative that pushed the threat of terrorism and aided in the creation of militainment. Militainment then differs from propaganda, as militainment integrates the citizen into a military entertainment complex. However, I'd argue that this still can lend itself to the perpetuation of propaganda. The liberal fantasy of the military and thus America presented in the MCU makes viewers feel like they are part of said fantasy, that they are safe in said fantasy. In 2016's Captain America Civil War, Steve Rogers slash Captain America says the safest hands are still our own. The freedom on which the American military operates is surely embodied through Rogers' words, ignoring the various coercive methods it utilizes and its disregarding of international laws. Steve Rogers suggests total freedom for superheroes to do as they please, much like the military does. Yet, viewers are often unable to make this connection. Further, the infamous S.H.I.E.L.D. and its endeavors represent what is called a clean war, as it frames violence and control in a palpable manner for viewers." In the MCU, S.H.I.E.L.D.'s acronym is changed from Strategic Hazard Intervention Espionage Logistics Directorate to Strategic Homeland Intervention Enforcement and Logistics Division. Here, its espionage roots are replaced with a more nationalistic approach to administration. America transformed the comic medium from something fun for the kids into imperial propaganda. Paul S. Hirsch, in his book Pulp Empire, The Secret History of Comic Book Imperialism, writes about Marvel in the 1960s saying, Marvel's new superhero straddled the line between purely commercial comic books to propaganda titles and, by the early 1960s, comic book superheroes were waging war against the communists in Vietnam. The propaganda present in the comics has surely transferred to the films and shows, some arguing that they have become fascism with a liberal aesthetic. The liberal aesthetic and notion of representation has permeated in the MCU, as more and more people from marginalized communities have led MCU projects. Yet, this liberal approach to representation becomes surface-level swill in the context of what these films and projects stand for. As Peter Taylor says, the MCU's approach to representation and visibility mirrors the modern Democratic Party, placing a woman or person of color in a position of power, but refusing to address the structural and historical causes that have contributed to those same groups' historical marginalization. Hence, having women or POC leads does not necessarily mean your project will have something to say about the oppression, especially when you're positioning the project as inherently political, just as the MCU does. The history of comics as propaganda can still be seen in the MCU today and its militainment. I understand that some people will completely disregard what I am saying here. I've had people tell me that I hate fun for critiquing the MCU, which is the furthest thing from the truth. I love fun. Fun is cool. I have fun watching many of the better MCU projects. However, if I were to ignore the blatant American-slash-military-slash-intelligence propaganda on display in the MCU, I wouldn't be a very good media consumer, would I? Time and time again, Disney and Marvel Studios have shown us what they believe. They believe in America. They believe in military power. They believe in national defense. This is all fine and dandy until you realize the cultural impact that these can have when displayed in a film. I want viewers to think about what they're seeing, not just when it comes to MCU projects, but all visual mediums. And to the MCU fans, open your eyes and ears to this conversation and you'll learn a lot. Like, a lot.